0: Hey, Pitchfork listeners, we're working on another Ask Me Anything episode and we need your questions for Nick and the team. What do you wanna know? Call us at 731-388-9334. Leave us a voicemail asking your question and we might just answer it on our next AMA episode of Pitchfork Economics. Again, that's 731-388-9334. Looking forward to hearing your questions. You know, we've privatized a
1: crap load of stuff, and I think it's safe to say that the quality of life in the country certainly has
2: not improved. Privatization is one of the key strategic approaches to dismantle government, you know, to make government a cash cow for the private sector and corporate interests.
0: If there's one thing I've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic is that we live in the best of all possible worlds, right? <laughs> That's right. But the market has totally fixed it.
1: In today's episode, we get to talk about privatization of public goods with our old friend Donald Cohen. And, you know, it's a really interesting subject area and has been, you know, one of the main thrusts of the neoliberal takeover of government and policy. This idea that the market is always right. The mm-hmm. market solutions are always superior to public solutions. They're always more efficient. The quality of the service is always better, blah, 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 blah.
0: And and the pursuit of private profit always serves the public the good. The public good, the public interest. The invisible hand. Exactly. All right. Exactly. If there's one thing I've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic is that we live in the best of all possible worlds, right? <laughs> That's right. The, the, the market has totally fixed it.
1: Exactly. And, you know, we've privatized a crap load of stuff. And I think it's safe to say that the quality of life in the country certainly has not improved. And, you know, I think the other thing that's really interesting about this subject area is that the the effects of privatization extend far beyond, you know, merely the quality or price of the goods and services that you're trying to provide it has, I think, in my opinion, had a really big effect on how we feel collectively about government and uh, how we operate as citizens or don't, as the case may be.
0: And one of the reasons why I, I brought up uh, the, the COVID pandemic at the start is because yeah. I think there's been there's a stark example of This um, conflict between our perception of the market and the and market efficiency and how it really works in the real world when you get to things like healthcare, how unprepared we were, how decades of privatization, the fact that we are the only major uh, industrialized nation without a public health without a, a national public health system, and how decades of privatization left our healthcare system leaving it with so little resiliency when when this pandemic hit that, yes, it was efficient to shut down all those rural hospitals. It was (laughs) definitely efficient because you had less overhead, you had less excess capacity, because let's be honest, you know, a hospital, many of those beds are going to be unfilled most days. And there's a cost that comes with that until until you have like this Omicron surge, where even in Seattle, which is packed with hospitals, they're lining people up on uh, cots in the hallway, because there isn't enough space to deal with, you know, what we all knew was inevitable.
1: Right. And here we are. Anyway, I, I you know, I think it, nobody's thought about this subject more than our guest, Donald, uh, who we know well, and who's been thinking about these things carefully. Uh, so it'll be really fun to hear him elaborate on the challenges of privatization and what we should all do about it.
2: My name is Donald Cohen. I'm the executive director of In the Public Interest. We're a national strategy and research and policy center around public goods and services. I just published a book entitled The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Give us a little context
1: about your organization and about your book and what brought you
2: to the subject? Um, the organization that I, I created and lead is, uh, you know, we, we're kind of a think and act tank that supports uh, policymakers, uh, unions, community groups around the country that are trying to, you know, fight bad privatization deals of, of their public goods and services and increase public revenues to sort of make government better, function better. We do that in a lot of sectors, uh, infrastructure, education, social services, kind of the, you know, as the title of the book says, the privatization of everything, we deal with pretty much everything that's, you know, that's a, that's a public thing and a public service. The reason that I got into the work and the reason that I, uh, I, you know, we wrote the book is that, you know, I've long believed as an older person, I've long believed in the value and the importance of both public ideals and public services. And have seen, you know, over the last you know, several decades, kind of assault on both the idea and the institution of government. Privatization is one of the key strategic approaches to dismantle government and to turn, you know, to make government a, you know, a cash cow for the private sector and corporate and corporate interests. Uh, so, you know, we publish a lot of research, uh, do a lot of trainings and support, work with policymakers on on crafting policy. And analyzing policy, doing and we do it primarily around the country at at cities and states.
0: So let's let's get some definite definitional issues out of the way. When you say privatization, uh, you're using that term a bit more broadly than uh, the way an economist might, aren't you?
2: Yes, um, you know, I mean, most people think of privatization. They'll remember, you know, George W. Bush's efforts to privatize Social Security. They'll think of a private prison or maybe school vouchers, depending on where they are. And all those things are true. But my definition is as follows. It's private control over public goods. We distinguish, and we can get into it, we distinguish a little bit how we define public goods, even from the economics textbooks. But it's essentially uh, you know, this, the, the things that we all need and we need everyone to have. That's the most colloquial definition I'll use as public goods, of public goods, you know, education, knowledge, health, clean air and water, community, parks, libraries, you know, at all all levels of of our economy and our society. The distinction on public goods, because I'll make is, if you look in the economics textbooks, public goods has a very narrow definition. And we we Mm -hmm. reject that definition. The definition being it's non-exclusive and non-rivalrous. These are things that fundamentally, if you can exclude someone from having it, and that's the non-exclusive, and the non-rivalrous is you can somebody using it doesn't prevent somebody else from using it. you know that's their definition of a public good simply just that and in our mm-hmm. view in my view is that leads let, lets the market decide what we get and what we don't get. now take healthcare care in that definition, healthcare is a private good, not a public good. you know um, can we exclude people? <laughs> yeah sure we sure do <laughs> lots of people and and in fact, there are only so many hospitals and doctors and and nurses, you know, we're learning now. So it's right, you know, there's, there's limited supply. But when we say pub, when I, the word, the definition we use for public goods is we should be able to decide through democratic processes that everybody, that healthcare and other things are things that we should all have, regardless of whether you have the money to pay for it, regardless of how much money you have. You know, that's what democracy is about, is, it you know, is... Uh, living your aspirational values,
1: but so Don, this is obvious, but I do think it's worth teasing out. What has been the main thrust of the privatization argument over the last forty-five or fifty years uh, of the
2: of the advocates for privatization? Yeah, yeah. Like so, it, it's it's. I'd say it's a couple things. I mean, the fundamentals are. You know, I think there's some level of. You know, I've you know six propaganda successes and some level of of good opportunism and political strategy. Government fails us, right? It's wasteful, it's inefficient, um, it's bureaucratic, number one. Number two is, and the private sector is inherently more efficient. Market competition and the profit motive uh, are inherently better mechanisms to deliver the most for the most, to deliver goods and services to all. So you know those are the you know those are the arguments we deal with at a day-to-day basis. You know, oh, you know, private sector is always more efficient than government. It turns out not to be true. But there's also more to interrogate there. So why do governments privatize? There's a set of reasons. Depends on who. First off, you know, governing is hard. If you're a mayor, I like to think at that level, and you've got a lot of problems and a major global corporation comes to you with pretty pictures and they say cheaper and better and faster, one less, and and no new taxes, again, not true. You know, yeah, take this off my hands, right? So, and it happens all the time. It happens because of desperation, right? And just the challenges of running a city say, but it also happens because of the sea we're living in that we've we've been talking about, the sort of the basic belief yeah, market good, government bad. Market efficient, government inefficient. So, you know, we're, we're we're swimming in that sea. The other piece of this, of course, is ideological and political. There are massive, you know, amount of money spent by ideologues and conservative think tanks and corporate front groups and others to sell the ideas of privatization and forward, you know. So, but all of these are sort of at play and in an environment of austerity where you don't have a lot of resources but when a government's desperate because they don't have the resources to give things and by the way they believe everybody believes the market's better anyway and they have relationships with those companies as well i think that's less important than people think it is but it's real people outsource things i mean in red states they're, you know, they're, they do it as a matter of you know they get elected to do that because they could break you you know they could bust unions they can you know downsize government they don't downsize government they just make it a leviathan they just make it something else um, and they can put it you know they can put it where they can get their hands on it
1: i think what's really important is to tease out the fundamental thrust of the privatization argument because it's plausible it's just not true generally and you know the plausible part of the argument is that markets are more efficient and just are better at providing goods and services than government is. And there is some truth to the way in which markets effectively solve different kinds of uh, problems, right? The market is better at evolving better cell phone uh, designs than uh, giant government bureaucracy is likely to. That's correct. And which is why, you know, it's great to have a robust technology sector try, competing to try to find better and better solutions to these kinds of problems. That is true and there are some circumstances within which the market the pri- private markets do really deliver as you know not to pun but deliver the goods. But the truth is that they're they're actually not more efficient or effective at a variety of tasks including things like healthcare. <laughs> you know and and this is probably the Canonical example in, in the United States where we we spend in the range of twice as much per citizen per year for healthcare outcomes that are worse than our rival developed nations do using non-market mechanisms. That's okay. right, you know, uh, for better for, for better outcomes. And, you know, to make it really, really super simple, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure about these numbers, but generally private private insurers in the United States take a 15% cut on every healthcare dollar but in a you know reasonably well run public uh, system like Canada or Taiwan or whatever it is that cut is
2: 2% or something like yeah, that 3% 3% I mean well yeah. it's, it's, these are a little bit old numbers but medicare you know typically was uh, administering at about 3% overhead right. you know and remember the 15% overhead in the in the private sector includes other things it includes profits it includes debt service for uh, you know uh, mergers right. and acquisitions the thing what you said about markets is both really true it's not that it's true; is that there are truths, yeah, right? Because the profit motive drives innovation. Now, that's not universally true. No, the you profit, can have
0: innovation lots of places, and plus, oh, or no innovation exactly <laughs> in, well, in the case of monopolies.
2: Well, yeah. and also the pri- i mean, the profit motive—you know—created the, the uh, opioid crisis. Am I right? Correct. People, right. Hundred so, percent. So, if you know, the, so it's it's sort of in each of these things, you know, the, the laws of supply and demand are real. But sometimes they have, you know, counter public purpose effects. That's right. Right. And so I think that there's, you know, one of the things I say a lot is there's different things, market things and public things are different. Yeah. Right. If you want to give, it's not question, even in our, uh, you know, a a single payer healthcare system, there's private facilities, right? Yeah. So the the question is, is it in a public thing? You want to make sure that the public means all, everybody gets and market things don't do that. Right. And so that's it. so I, I just think what I say over and over again, it's like it's like, you know, using a hammer to cook your
0: eggs. They're just different things. Right. So I did want to drill down a little bit because you, you did title the book The Privatization of Everything. So <laughs> that would suggest there's a lot of things that have been privatized. Can, can you give us uh, some examples and, and, and some of the, the most egregious cases of privatization? We
2: don't know what the scope is numerically. There's no data you know, at the state and local level in particular. So what we do know is that you know, there are, in the federal level, because Paul Light's done research, is that there are three times as many people who work, who do public things and work, you know, provide services that the government pay for that don't work for government. That's you know, three to one. So there's a massive amount. The other thing we know is virtually every sector. Uh, and we we all and we look uh, you know everything we do, you know roads and bridges and water and schools and parks and libraries. I mean, you could literally go down the list and not find anything where there's not a private corporation thinking about how to get a piece of it. and you know, and we look at you know investor calls and we look at the you know the marketing, you know, the strategic plans, uh, you know discussions of private industries and corporations. And you know there's, Trillions of dollars spent every year by governments. And if you're the head of a private prison company, there's a hundred to two hundred billion dollars you could get your hands on. So we know it's with seven to eight to nine trillion dollars being spent every year, everything is at stake. I'll give a few examples that illustrate the larger problematic dynamics. So, um, Chicago in 2008 or early nine, you know, bleeding cities, bleeding red ink privatized its uh, parking meters for 75 years. There was a proposal made by a consortium of Morgan Stanley, a sovereign wealth firm from the Middle East, and a national parking company, and said, we'll give the city $1.1 billion upfront in exchange for control of the parking meters for 75 years. That's till 2083. Two things, and then vote. They voted on Tuesday. You know, desperate desperate government uh, is a good place to market your wares. Right. Right. Um, Two things became true after that fact when it was analyzed by the inspector general and others. Two things. One more important than the other. Even if it, it's an incredibly stupid way to borrow on your future revenues. Um, just you know, who knows if we're going to be driving in 19 in 2083. Um, but even if they did, they got hosed. They sold a yeah. billion dollars too cheap. So that's one. But here's more important. Now, for the for the life of the contract, the remaining 60 some odd years of the contract, that if the city wants wants to eliminate parking spots permanently for bus rapid transit, for bike lanes, for pedestrian malls because land use patterns change, because housing patterns change, they have to buy the spots back. OK, so what does that mean? You have to keep the interests of the and contracts, as you well know, are very rigid documents. So you have to keep the interests of, of the private you know, party whole. And that fundamentally ties the hands of democratically elected aldermen and and the mayor of Chicago from dealing with fundamental things, land use, housing, transportation, climate, you know, all of their basic responsibilities. So we see that over and over again. Another example I'll give, um, I'll go to charter schools because that's an interesting one. And there's good charters and bad charters. That's not the issue. You know, and the original idea was laboratories of innovation and then share the ideas so that all students, you know, all schools could benefit. There are charter schools around the country that make their teachers sign NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements, yeah. to prevent them from sharing the school's, quote, trade secrets. What are those trade secrets? Lesson plans, teaching methodology, right? The exact thing that, you know, we should be sharing if if, in fact, right. if the purpose of our public dollars, because they're all publicly funded, is to, you know, is to improve education, them, improve yeah. education. Yeah. And then let me give you an example about this idea about the market, what's in the market. It's a crazy one, I'm not gonna read something. So, uh, you know, all the data for our weather apps is public data from the National Weather Service, all of it. Um, but there are companies, AccuWeather, whether you know, all of the ones that we look at on our phones and Google and on the TV, uh, you know, pr- package, package that data in different ways. Some it's nonsense, it's just better graphics and some, you know, specialized stuff for businesses. So AccuWeather is one of the biggest companies. Trump did try to appoint uh, the head of it to run the weather service, but fortunately failed. So they had a contract with Union Pacific, you know, train company. So here there was a tornado in Oklahoma. And here's, I'm going to read you what the, the CEO said after the fact about his service. Two trains stopped two miles apart. They watched the tornado go between them. Unfortunately, it went into a town that didn't have our service, and a couple of dozen people were killed, but the railroad did not lose anything.
0: Oh, well, there's so, the market. There's
2: the market. Okay. <laughs> the market excludes the markets for some. The market is for those that have resources, and public goods, as we're defining, and public things need to be for all. Now, I'll, I'll, one, last, one last, just to give a t- taste. You know, uh, Medicaid was privatized in a couple of states, uh, Iowa, Kansas, and it's, you know, it's pretty simple, so I won't dwell on it. You know, a big multi-globe, uh, you know, public corporations took over big pieces of it. Um, what happened? You know, services went down. Because here's why. Because when you when they talk about efficiency, they really mean they'll do it for less, right? They'll do as good or better for less. Yeah. And when you take profit out, you take exec comp out, you take... You know mergers and equipment acquis- debt service for mergers and acquisition that money's got to come from somewhere yeah. and there's a very finite list of places that comes from. Yeah. Worker workers' wages, the number of workers, the level of service, the quality yeah. of the equipment.
0: And right. as and as we we learned during the pandemic, an efficient healthcare system is far less resilient because one of the things that makes it efficient is to have less capacity, less redundancy. That's exactly right.
1: Yeah but the other thrust of the argument i think that's very very important is that destroying our capacity to provide public goods also is highly detrimental to our conceptions of social cohesion and democracy and the rest of it right like this yep. is yep. Yep. this is you know like this is the i think obviously the more serious threat today is the fact that so many Americans don't really believe in the country anymore, (laughs) right? right. They don't don't believe they live in a country and that they have, that that, that they benefit from it uh, or that they should contribute to it. You know, that's a very, very
2: serious problem. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it is the, at the core of much, of a yeah. lot, of a lot, because one thing, if if we're not in it, if we're not solving the same problems, <laughs> we're not going to get to the big ones, right? We're certainly right. not going to get to the big ones. To the extent that we are, you know, markets segregate and stratify and segment, right? And so to the extent That that we move in that direction, either by commodifying existing public goods and services, or by just, or by you know, voucher schools and a whole other set of things, we're not experiencing the same thing. We're not in the same community, Um, and so, and if we don't understand each other, if we don't, if we can't appreciate the other, the experience of the other, we can't. You know, the problems we solve are are just for us. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the ideas we talk about in the book is, you know, one of the shifts has been, you know, philosophically. Michael Sandel's written about it, and others. You know, there's a shift from our our identity from citizens to consumers. Yeah. Right, where in a consumer, you know, we all consume. You buy something, and all you really care about is whether you get what you want, whether it's good enough. But as citizens, have a different well, set of values and a purpose. You know, you want to yeah. get good stuff. You want the quality of the service to be quality. But you also understand our interdependence, and you also understand that it's in our social interest, democratic interest, economic interest for every kid to be educated, not yeah. just mine. For everyone to have good health care, and not just me. I think yeah. it's a, crucially, And, you know, I mean, we talk in the book, there's a section of the book, you know, the books broken into sections called community, which I, have my favorite. You know, we talk about parks, we talk about libraries, we talk about increasing segregation in education through both charters and vouchers, we're seeing that. And that we're, you know, the less we share public things together, you know, how that weakens democracy, as you say. And then the last section is about social security, because that's the community of the whole. And notice how resilient it is politically.
0: Okay, so we, we've talked about all the privatization that has happened and both the specific and uh, broader political, uh, sociological impacts. What's the alternative? Uh, what's the opposite of privatization? What should, is there a set of rules uh, for uh, what government should be handling?
2: Yes, what's the alternative? Let me start there. So, the alternative of, of private control over public goods is public control over public goods. Now that and I'm using the word control very specifically. It's not public delivery. We're not talking about, you know, a social, you know, nationalization of all goods and services. That's we're not talking about. There's public and private in everything. But the question when you get to when on the public goods is who's in charge? And how do you get in charge? You know, you might deliver it yourself, you know, public like public schools, you might deliver it directly, but you also set standards. I mean, you mm-hmm. set standards for private and public. You know, you set standards both in process, you know, in performance and outcomes, but also in process and also in procedures, how things are done. You set standards that think forward, you know, like in Chicago, they just didn't think forward, right? Right. <laughs> What's going to happen later? So you have to set standards. But secondarily you need cops on the beat, right? It's one thing to have standards. It's one thing, you know, we have lots of food safety standards that are quite good. But we've increasingly, you know, both cut the funding for FSI, you know, the food inspection service, and now allow companies to to self inspect. Right. Um, if you don't have cops Boeing media, 737 being
1: a marvelous example of what happens when companies self inspect.
2: Well, it, it not and not just <laughs> self inspect, and they, they that that's about a they use a contracting model. Right. So, I mean, here's the one thing that's really true. Everybody gets the following thing that if we all contract for things, paint a house or or whatever. Right. And we all know something. If you don't watch bad things happen. Right. (laughs) Right. So we never increase when we, when, when governments outsource something say we never increase the, the bureaucratic staff to oversee the contracts. (laughs) What do you think is going to happen?
1: Yeah. You're going to get screwed.
2: Yeah. Whether it's either corruption or incompetence or 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 what have you. Exactly yep. right. Um, there's a, you know, as a point, the other part of the answer to your question, Goldie, is and it's not a, well, I'll take your question to another place. Is we have lots of power to set those standards and make sure they're lived up to that we don't use, right? The government has police power, you know, regulatory power. So we can right. use that and we should use it. We have procurement power. You know, governments in America, you know, the data we've seen spend $2 trillion a year, right? That's statistically and, you know, significant in terms of what could have an impact on inequality if we, you know, if we establish, you know, job standards, which we should. Um, we create social insurance. We could take things into the social wage, like child care and other things that are now market goods. So what I believed if there was, uh, you know, one, you know, if I was God or the president or, or some combination thereof. Uh-huh,
0: you're getting to our benevolent dictator question. A, I would say, <laughs> I,
2: what, I would, what I would say is. Every public decision, whether it's a land use decision at a city, or whether it's a, you know, or whether it's buying airplanes, or whether it's you know, running prisons or whatever, but every public decision should be oriented towards solving the big ones. And what are the big ones? You know, I think you all agree: inequality, climate, racism, and democracy so everything should be oriented towards that you don't i mean you can we can come up with a list of specifics make sure it's transparent and there's standards and good living wages and all that but i think the guidance needs to start with use every decision to solve our problems today and 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 make sure we're doing no harm at the minimum but at the maximum and more appropriately we should be actually making progress on those things
0: so so we have the right to be aspirational and instead of just leaving it up to the market
2: yeah, we sure do. I mean, and this is part of the propaganda success of the thirty last forty years is the mark is market fundamentalism and the and the inherent superiority of the market. Like I said earlier, there's market things and there's public things. They're different things, and the market is nowhere near. It's it's not even not superior. It's not appropriate for public things.
1: So, in terms of practical solutions, what should we be doing in the world today?
2: Well, I'd say two things, one of which I sort of mentioned. So one is to be aware of the public things around us and the public decisions around us. It sounds silly to say, but it's important because we also, one thing I say about public services is that they're both invisible and ubiquitous. Yeah, and we like take we, them for granted we completely take you know yeah. the, you turn on the tap and it's a miracle the water comes out we don't think about where it goes or yeah where it comes from it's
1: an even so, bigger miracle is when we go to the bathroom and we flush it just goes it, away exactly it does not stay <laughs> in our house
2: <laughs> and, 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 it, and, it, and it probably goes a fairly large long distance yeah. to get yes. somewhere like yeah, exactly fairly, so one is to be aware the other is to so interrogate The decisions that are being made in your community about those things. Understand what's public, what's private, and all that. And and then also, when you hear, you know, when there's an effort to, we're going to privatize a big thing, interrogate those core, you know, ideas and arguments that they use, like you were talking about earlier. What do they mean by efficiency? They say they're going to do it cheaper. What do they mean? What power or authority might we lose, right? What's their interest? You know, water companies, if you look at their 10Ks and their risk factor sections, you know, water conservation is a risk factor, is a risk to them. So it's really important to understand that. And then finally, I think setting standards, absolutely crucial. We One of the things we do, organize, you know, in our organization is because we, we deal with so many things and, uh, you know, and some, some of them are fairly complicated, the financing of infrastructure. Most important thing is to ask hard questions. Like I was saying, what's going to happen to the jobs? If you're going to outsource something and the way you're going to save money is going to turn a th- $25 an hour job of a bus driver into a $15 an hour job. You know, you shouldn't do that. And in fact, what you are doing is, you know, hurting the economy, increasing inequality. So we, we do this all the time with electeds and policymakers, teaching them how to ask those hard questions. Final question. Why do you do this work? That's a good question. You know, I decided, you know, what's my politics or what, do I, what are my beliefs? Uh, real simple. I hate greed and I hate hate. Those are my motivating values, and then the other thing is, I think people—you know—the only way change happens is people making it, and people. So people who need to have an understanding of the challenges we face, why they are that way, and what you can do about them, and uh, and you know, and how to how to make change happen, and which is how I spend most of my days actually helping people learn those things and helping them do those things.
1: Fabulous. Well, Don, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. Best so of luck. Uh, on the new book. All right, All right. we'll talk, talk soon. soon. Okay, bet. bye. take
2: care.
0: Bye. So I think Nick, one one takeaway I had from this conversation is one that we've discussed uh, previously on the podcast, and and that is this idea about how I, I guess it's the the word to use is choice that. <laughs> that when it comes to what we consider to be a public good, the economics textbooks would narrowly tell you that this or this is not a public good. And it's this very narrow example of when government should should step in. And I think what, what Donald explains very clearly is uh-uh, we have a choice. We can choose what we consider to be a public good. When yeah. people say that health care is a right, Uh, And people dispute that. No, it's a right if we say it's a right. We can make healthcare a right. When people argue for housing to be a right, yes, it can be a right. It it can be a right if we say it's a right because these aren't natural rights. Those things don't exist. Rights are things that are uh, granted to you within a functional uh, society.
1: That's right. And whenever I think about these problems, I always want to zoom out to other examples and you know, just where you'd want to live. And, you know, in places that take the right of healthcare seriously, you, you know, you have pretty high functioning societies where people feel pretty good about their healthcare system. And where you, uh, in places that take housing seriously as a right, uh, it turns out everybody can afford to live in a house and you don't have tens of thousands of homeless people. Uh, crowded under bridges and um, begging on streets. And, you know, it just seems so obvious to me that, you know, in the United States, we've been hoisted on our own petard, right? We have bought right. this free market nonsense for generation, and are now living with the consequences of the downsides of it all, including, you know, it, ridiculous housing costs for most families Catastrophic levels of homelessness in most cities, uh, a, a healthcare system that bankrupts, <laughs> routinely bankrupts middle-class families mm-hmm. when they have a tiny problem. Uh, you know, like all of this stuff, all of these challenges are a consequence of this dumb view, neoliberal view that the market will sort all our problems out if you just let people make profits doing it, and it just has not turned out to be true that there's a ton of stuff that doesn't work that way.
0: And, and this is the brilliance, of course, of the the Grover Norquist drown government in a bathtub campaign, that uh, the more you succeed at doing that, the worse it makes government look to everybody and it makes it easier to drown the government in a bathtub. You know, it's this vicious yeah, uh, right. circle where eventually, yeah, it is going to circle the drain. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And, the worse you make so- it, the less yeah, the less it's a self-fulfilling it yeah. prophecy. It's like the Republicans run on the message that government is bad at doing things, put us in charge of this thing that it that we don't believe in. And then they go about making government less effective.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Um,
0: which brings up another thing I think it's just important takeaway and something we've talked about a lot on the podcast. And that is, you know, that word effective, this difference between efficiency and effectiveness, you can make something cheaper that doesn't make it better. You can make something efficient, more efficient that doesn't make it more effective. And if we define efficiency totally in terms of of costs, the market may be better than that. Private companies may often be better than that because uh, cost is their bottom line and they don't care how much they screw the community or screw their workers or screw their customers if they can increase profits. Right. Whereas in a democracy, uh, the government has to answer to voters. Right. And so you end up with like public construction projects being more expensive than private construction projects because public projects have to p- pay the prevailing wage. Whereas private developers can go and uh, hire non-union uh, labor forces at, at below prevailing wage. Yeah. And those are choices we make as a society. Yeah, And, and there's, um, there's benefits often to spending more money.
1: Yeah, like a high-functioning society. And so for sure, everybody, buy our friend Don Cohen's new book. I think it makes a really, really important argument. And the title again is The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back.